Welcome to the Fraser Basin Council's First Nations Home Energy Save podcast. I'm your host, Darla Simpson, coming to you from beautiful North Vancouver, British Columbia, on the traditional lands of the Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. Today's podcast is diving into the topic of ventilation and cooling. One of our previous podcasts covered heating, so this is the other side of the mechanical systems found in many homes. And I have with us as our guest again today, Stefan Trangelit, a senior engineer with SES Consulting. Welcome, Stefan. Hi, Darla. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. So our goal today is to introduce some fundamentals around ventilation and air conditioning, talk a little bit about how they relate to air quality, which is a big concern in First Nations communities. And it also builds on the theme that we've had throughout the series about looking at our home as nested systems. And in this case, the more airtight your building envelope, the more important it is to look closely at your ventilation. Absolutely. There's quite a bit of material to cover here, so I'm excited to dive into it. All right, we'll get down to it. So I think before we dive into the specifics of ventilation systems, that maybe we'll talk about some of the basic concepts behind ventilation, because it's not it's not a topic many people are familiar with or think about very often. Absolutely. In fact, we often take it for granted completely. In BC in particular, you also have a really wide range of climate conditions, so temperature and humidity. When we boil it down, how does the climate we're in impact our need for ventilation? Yeah, that's a good point. Of course, we have such a diversity of climate zones in uh, British Columbia, and it's going to depend a lot on, on how humid your region is and how humid it is in each season. So, for example, some places in the interior have a very dry winter, and some places along the coast have a very wet winter, very high humidity in the winter. And those two need to be treated differently, and it might actually impact the choices that a homeowner makes in the equipment selection. Other than bathroom fans and kitchen fans, ventilation isn't strictly required in single-family homes, is it? That's right. And in fact, many single-family homes don't have any additional ventilation other than, like you said, the, uh, the kitchen and the bathroom. But it's something that's coming more into the public view, especially new constructed homes are more commonly being seen with and we're starting to understand more the relationship between uh, having a ventilation system in your home and managing the indoor air quality whether that's you know making sure you have fresh air in removal of odor making sure that carbon dioxide isn't building up various aspects to it i imagine with our homes getting more airtight and our building envelopes getting more energy efficient that the the demand for like mechanical or active ventilation is increasing just because we don't have the natural airflow in and out of our building so much. Is, is that accurate? Yeah, absolutely. It's something that you wouldn't really know about unless you kind of work in the industry of, of building homes. But there's, in fact, a lot of air that's coming into your home and leaving your home through the various seam seals and cracks, whether that's the interface between the wall and the roof or the wall on the ground, even around the windows, underneath the doors is a really common one, of course. There is an element of natural ventilation that happens in just about everybody's homes. And like you alluded to, the modern construction techniques, it's really tightening that up a lot, and it's really reducing the amount of uh, natural ventilation that you get. And that increases the need for mechanical ventilation. So when you're designing for a larger commercial building or a multifamily building, there's this idea of air changes per hour where you're actively thinking about the ventilation in the space. Can you explain to us a little bit what air changes means? 
Yeah, certainly. So there are certain bylaws in place in every province and municipality uh, that reference building codes. And these building codes define what the minimum ventilation rates need to be in, in a building with a certain number of occupants and a certain type of activity in those spaces. And one of the main uh, values that they discuss in these codes is the air changes per hour. And it's quite literally the amount of times in one hour that all of the air inside of a room or a floor of a building is exhausted and replenished with fresh air. So the larger your ventilation system is, the higher that number goes. And, uh, you know, it depends on a lot of factors. It can get a little bit technical, but generally we're talking about like three to six air changes per hour in many common spaces. And that's really a design principle, right? So if we're to look at that from a practical perspective of people living in their homes that are curious about air quality, is there another way that we could look at it? Well, one of the most effective proxies for air quality is to measure the CO2 levels because managing how much uh, CO2 sort of just coming from humans exhaling is, is one of the principal reasons why we even care about ventilation at all. Now, there are some other factors that do need to be mentioned. Another obvious one is odor clearance, right? You know, if you have a smell, whether that's in a kitchen or elsewhere, um, removing that odor is also going to be uh, one of the, the reasons why you have ventilation and define these sort of minimums. But the CO2 levels is a really good indicator to think about. And we measure this in parts per million. So the outside air, it has about 450 parts per million. That's just sort of the natural ambient level of carbon dioxide that's in the air. And then when we measure it inside, uh, and you can actually install sensors that just mount on your wall. They almost look like a thermostat and they measure the CO2 directly and they can read out what the parts per million are. And of course, when it goes above the natural outdoor air rate, which is 450, then we know that, you know, us human occupants, we're contributing to this elevated uh, carbon dioxide level indoors. And a little bit, that's totally fine, totally normal and to be expected. But we do have upper thresholds, upper limits that we don't want to exceed. And so especially in larger buildings, we measure this. And when we see the carbon dioxide uh, levels increase up to a certain point that we don't like anymore, we increase the ventilation systems. So we increase the air changes per hour. And I know from personal experience that, um, you know, if you have questions about air quality in your space, you can get these great little aftermarket carbon dioxide sensors. They're 100 to $200. You can install them in your living room and then kind of monitor them. And correct me if I'm wrong, but inside your home, CO2 levels should be between 600 to 800 parts per million. And then if they're starting to exceed that, that's when you want to open a window or turn on your kitchen fan or, or do something to kind of actively improve the ventilation in the space. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. 600 to 800 parts per million CO2 is ideal. I would say a little higher than that is fine as well. What you want to avoid is 2,000 parts per million. That's the number that a lot of studies have shown uh, contribute to drowsiness and or headaches after about five minutes of being inside. And that's a number that is actually reachable. If you have a small room and a few people in there, it, it really does go up above that. So measuring it is fantastic. Like you said, you can buy these sensors. They can be battery operated. They can plug into the wall. Uh, they cost a couple hundred dollars and uh, you can put them somewhere where you can observe them. 
but it's, it's great to have an action plan for when you see those readings go too high. Excellent. I like that because it, it feels like something very tangible we can do about air quality. You know, it's something that we can't see and it's very hard to act on or even describe often. So ventilation also has really big impacts in terms of the moisture in our homes. And I mean, it's perhaps obvious leaks and flood issues that need to be dealt with right away when they happen. That is a moisture issue. But molds and just high humidity in homes can be an issue as well. Yeah. And in fact, BC Hydro recommends relative humidity to be in the 50% range in summer and around 30% in winter. And frankly, these are hard to obtain numbers. So it's worth understanding that the ideal humidity ranges are lower than what most British Columbians are currently experiencing, especially in older homes. And they say that anything above 60% relative humidity could allow for mold growth. If you've ever read the, uh, the weather forecast, you know that it's above 60% humidity on the coast here. Uh, I'm based in Squamish. I know you're in North Vancouver, Darla. Um, it's, it's often 80 to 95%, right? This is one of those things that comes back to climate as well. Growing up on the prairies, lack of humidity was a major issue and shake the covers and they would spark at night. So <laughs> it's, it's very location dependent, but on the wet coast, as we call it, definitely high humidity levels can lead to issues with mold and ventilation can help to address that. And I like to think that's one of the reasons that we're doing these podcasts to sort of um, educate people and give them the, the tools to understand their specific needs because they are so different uh, regionally and otherwise. What are some indicators that we can use to know that there might be moisture issues in our home? Well, moisture in the air turns into condensation when it comes into contact with a cold surface. So we expect to see this when we pull a cold drink out of the fridge in the summer, but we don't want to see this around our windowsills and creeping up onto our walls. Uh, especially in the wintertime. And then in the bathroom, I know you you can identify moisture issues sometimes with paint bubbling or cracking. It doesn't necessarily have to be visible mold to signal that there may be an issue. And in fact, I, th I think that visible mold is often not the first sign. But yeah, mold can be different colors, white, black, green. It often appears sort of higher up in the bathroom area, underneath the ceiling or high up on the walls. Uh, I'm sure we've all had to clean out some type of tiling grout at some point and that's sort of that black mold that gets in there and like you said when moisture penetrates the paint especially if it's an old or an insufficient paint it gets into the drywall and it starts to grow there and then it pu pushes the paint out and creates those bubbles and that's one of the the early indicators so there's the obvious signs of mold physical mold that you can see on your windowsills for example blistering paint and then i guess that musty odor that sometimes comes the mold can grow anywhere, um, food, wood, paper, fabrics. We all experience probably the moldy towel issue from time to time. You know, aside from these kind of one-off things, if we think we really have an issue with moisture in our home, what can we do? Well, one of the lowest cost activities you can do is to purchase a humidity sensor. This is a very simple technology and it comes in many forms, uh, often as low as $20 for a simple sensor that can be mounted on the wall. And then I guess getting into the good practice of using those bathroom and kitchen ventilation fans, which is, you know, where the majority of the moisture is going to be coming from in our home. Yeah, operating those fans properly is really critical to avoiding moisture. Definitely turning on that fan during shower time and leaving it on for some minutes afterwards. 
So we've mentioned mold buildup as one of the you know things that we want to prevent in terms of air quality. And we've kind of touched on carbon dioxide, which is one of the impacts of combustion or burning fuels in our homes. What are some of the other health impacts or air quality impacts that we should be thinking about? Well, though, I'm not exactly an air quality expert. I'm more of a, of a ventilation uh, design and operation kind of uh, engineer. But I would refer people to the excellent resources that are on the HealthLink BC website and looking at the indoor air quality resources that they have there because there's, there's a lot of information. Uh, just to give you some cliff notes on some of the subjects that they reference there, biological mold and mildew, we've sort of discussed that. But there's also perhaps insects, pollen, uh, combustion gases, as you mentioned, other volatile organic compounds that come from maybe cleaning agents or paints or fire retardants or some other type of chemical in your home, which is uh, perhaps open or perhaps degrading on a a surface if it's very old. Uh, Then, of course, there's asbestos concerns and uh, radon, which is found in many parts of BC, especially in the interior and northern. It's a naturally occurring radioactive gas, and you need to be aware of it uh, when you're living in zones. So most people who live in an area with radon are aware of it, but again, that that BC Health Link has some good maps about areas that that we should be thinking about that a bit more. And then, of course, asbestos hasn't really been around since the 1980s, so not something that's a problem in newer homes, but some of our older homes, particularly piping insulation, that sort of thing, may have asbestos. But that's only really an issue if you're disturbing it, correct? That's right. So now that we've covered the basics of kind of the importance of ventilation and some of the, the challenges that we're trying to address around air quality or indoor air quality in particular, what are some of those technologies that might be available in our homes to you know help them feel fresh and not stale and, and prevent some of the moisture issues that we've been talking about? Well, maybe we should start with some of the, the technologies and systems that are already in place in most people's homes, which would be like your bathroom exhaust fan is really critical. Most people, again, take it for granted. I maybe think it's just like sort of an odor removal tool, but it's really critical for managing the moisture because you have so much moisture in the bathroom, whether that's a bath or a shower or even just the faucet there. There's also the exhaust dryer that removes excess moisture from clothes. And that is uh, also a form of ventilation as it exhausts that, that moist, unwanted air out of the building. The kitchen uh, has, the, has the range hood, of course. Again, this is largely for smoke as well and, and to clear uh, grease from the air when you're, when you're frying, but it's also to remove moisture. You can imagine that if you have a pot of boiling water, all of that steam is just coming up and, and entering your home. And that would ideally be removed with that range hood. So those are some of the, the standard systems that we're familiar with, but like I said, often take for granted and don't realize the importance that they play in moisture management inside your home, as well as those other more sort of obvious uses. We can't really exhaust all this air without drawing in some fresh air to make up the difference, right? That would cause sticking in the doors and kind of a pressure imbalance. So what are some of our options around fresh air intake? Well, like you said, everything that uh, goes out must come in. The building is going to naturally find uh, the same pressures outdoors, basically. And we already talked earlier about sort of the natural ventilation, this ingress of air that comes through the different cracks and seams and through the doorways of the building. And that is essentially how uh, a home that doesn't have a fresh air makeup system per se, that's how it balances that pressure. So when you turn on that bathroom exhaust fan, 
that means that air is coming in maybe through the bathroom window or somewhere else in the house. Maybe it's even through the, the front door, underneath the front door and that, and that little gap that might be there. That's where that air comes in. So basically it's creating that pressure to draw the cold air in from the outside. That's right, yeah. And that's also why that there's an expense associated with running exhaust fans because you're typically exhausting air that you have spent money to heat in the wintertime whether that's, you know, electric or fireplace or gas. And the air that you're bringing in is fresh, cold outside air. And you now need to spend more money to heat that new air. So there's a cost associated. And I know in multifamily buildings, we usually have a makeup air unit on the roof. And so it's bringing in fresh air into the hallways, usually creating some positive pressure in the hallways so that we don't get the odors from the neighboring suites. But that can often be conditioned air as well. So it's warmed before it gets into the hallways. Is there an equivalent for single family homes, for like private homes? Yes, there absolutely is. Um, but similar to the to the multifamily buildings that have the, they're called usually called makeup air units that are on the roof. You know, they, they didn't used to have them in all buildings going, going back a couple of decades. I've certainly spent a lot of time in buildings that didn't have that kind of uh, ventilation system. But newer buildings do have it. Uh, and like you said, they, they provide a positive pressure airflow into the hallways. It's often heated and, or often cooled as well in, in the hot summertime. And what that looks like in a single family home is, is usually what we call an HRV or a heat recovery ventilator. And it's a, a ventilation system, sort of a, a box with a fan in it and some duct work that goes to it that um, does both jobs of providing an exhaust, a general exhaust for, for the home. So we're just removing whatever air is in there, whether that's whether it's got too much carbon dioxide or bad odors or dust, etc. And we're providing a fresh air stream into that building. So that's the active mechanical version of home ventilation then? Yes, that's exactly right. And it is quickly becoming uh, a new best practice for, for newly constructed homes. Uh, but again, I don't expect to see it on all new construction homes. Not quite yet. So if we do have an HRV in our home where we're thinking that we might want to have one, maybe we've got some air quality issues, what should we know about how they work, maintenance on them? Well, you actually uh, exchange the heat between the exhaust airflow and the, uh, the fresh uh, incoming air. I mentioned before that anything that we exhaust from our building, we've already spent money to heat that air at least in the winter time, right? And so we want to actually capture that heat and repurpose it. We, we want the air to go out, but we want to get the heat from the air and put that into the new fresh airstream. And that's exactly what a heat recovery ventilator does. That's the recovery part of the name. Uh, it, it has a mechanism internal to it that allows these two airstreams to cross paths and exchange heat. This all happens within the unit and generally the occupants or the owners are not involved in this process. It's more of an on-off switch that, that operates these. Now, there are some things to consider about these. Uh, they do generate some noise and some vibration because it's a, it's a mechanical device. It's a small machine, basically. It has a little motor and a fan that spins around and it moves that air around. And sometimes even that air just going through the ductwork can present a noise so that might be something 
to consider asking your contractor about if you're looking at purchasing an HRV or if you're involved in the construction of a new home uh, or even a, a retrofit scenario. Uh, I know that a lot of occupants do enjoy having a degree of control to that system, uh, being able to operate it in sort of a high mode or a low mode or off. But they, they can certainly add a lot of comfort and value and increasingly a lot of people are talking about the health benefits associated with having this kind of ventilation system. And I can see fresh air as a real benefit, but I, I definitely noticed that people want fresh air. They're more concerned about air quality, I think, than they have been in the past. What about air purifiers, especially for people with allergies? You see all these ads for aftermarket air purifiers. Is that is that a solution to air quality issues? I think it can be part of the solution, sure. Uh, mechanical or sort of these electromechanical air filters are the most common ones that you see uh, marketed. They can be installed at a forced air furnace or sort of inside of a duct. And you also see the portable versions that just sort of stand in, in the middle of a room and move air around. They have different degrees of filtration in them. Some of them use activated carbon filters to remove uh, gaseous pollutants. Some of them advertise various other technologies. I do believe that they can improve the air quality. Just know that that doesn't affect the carbon dioxide level in the space, which, as we discussed earlier, is one of the primary reasons why you want to have it. So they do do a good job of, of helping to filter out dust and perhaps taking care of some odor as well. And I know that one of the issues that we see in especially a lot of older homes is that their heating systems, their ventilation systems haven't been well maintained. So making sure that you're doing the proper maintenance on the filters, be they in your furnace or your if you've got an air conditioning unit, you need to clean that filter and make sure that it's dried out properly. In your heat pump, those filters need to be replaced every three months on the indoor units. That sort of thing will go a long way to help improving the air quality as well, especially for pollen and dander if those are issues. Oh yeah, absolutely. Replacing the filters is uh, not something that should be avoided. You know, the reason these systems are there are to, uh, to provide you with the best experience inside your home. And if you don't change those filters, if they get clogged or if they fail or allowing air to pass around them, um, then it, the whole system is not doing its job. So kind of building on this idea of aftermarket or standalone technologies that can help manage moisture and air quality in our home. What about dehumidifiers or if you're in a dry climate, a humidifier? Um, is that something we need to be thinking about to manage humidity in our homes? I would say that in most cases, uh, those are not necessary. Again, it depends a lot on your climate and it depends a lot on your space usage as well, right? So if you are having humidity issues excess moisture is noticed and you are already doing the best practices on your existing systems like your bathroom exhaust fan and your kitchen range hood, then I do think it's reasonable to look into a dehumidifier. And then I know that uh, dehumidifiers can have little humidistats in them as well. For the most energy efficient person, you want one with the humidistats. So when it reaches the desired humidity level, it, it actually does turn off. That's right. You, you want to avoid a simple on-off machine that needs to be manually controlled and make sure that it has um, a certain a set point value of, of humidity that it's aiming for and will sort of self-control to that set point. On some heat pumps, there's a dehumidification switch where it will help to, to address moisture in your home. And you can actually have dehumidifiers installed as part of your mechanical systems, correct? Yeah, it depends a lot on what kind of heat pump system we're talking about, but certainly some systems like that do have uh, additional functionality for that. 
And uh, so if you already uh, sort of have this in mind, that, that could be a valuable discussion to have with your contractor. So we've touched on it a few times, but maintenance is really an important part of managing indoor air quality, humidity, or moisture issues. So what are some of the best practices around just straight up maintenance? Uh, well, let's, let's start with some of the easy ones. Check for damp spots and fix leaks. Fixing leaks is really important because they don't just damage the immediate materials that they're leaking water onto, but they're adding in all of this moisture, all of this water into the home, and that will eventually evaporate and uh, transmit into other areas. Uh, also, air sealing your home. For example, we talked about underneath the door, installing weather stripping on places like that. And if you notice any other drafts, any sort of like cracks in the wall or around windows, maybe consider bringing someone in to address those pathways. I can imagine things like making sure that the flashing on your roof is working properly, that water's draining away from your foundation, those, those sorts of basic uh, best practice maintenance on your roof and, and exterior. Yeah, exactly. The more water that you can divert away from the interior of the building, the better in general. Uh, also, just ensuring that your your systems that you have in place that they're actually working. So I'm talking about your your clothes dryer, and that it doesn't have like a blocked uh, exhaust vent, for example. Um, making sure that your your stove, your range hood is actually working, and that it's not uh, the filter that's on the front isn't clogged with grease, and making sure that your bathroom vents are also working, that they can be turned on and off. If there's an automatic control or a humostat, making sure uh, that, that that's working and also that the vents are not clogged. And in the bathroom, which is probably one of the worst places in our homes for the odd leak and, and moisture issues, what are some of the things that we can do in our, in our washrooms in particular? Especially the caulking, unfortunately, doesn't last forever. So, um, you know, having a look at that and seeing if there's cracks in that or if it's allowing moisture in behind it, especially, those would be good, good signs uh, of some maintenance issues. Uh, also, the paint, we talked about paint sort of bubbling uh, a little bit before. That can happen perhaps with old paint, but especially if it's not bathroom paint, right? The reason that uh, paint suppliers market it as being for bathrooms is because that it has an added uh, moisture barrier in it and it's more effective at blocking out moisture from transmitting through it so if there's any sort of like paint uh, chips or paint uh, scratches in the bathroom area uh, maybe consider fixing those up with the appropriate paint and then if we wanted to look at maybe adding some new technologies or replacing equipment what are the options if we want to get a little bit more proactive about managing moisture air quality issues in our well, starting from the, the low-cost solutions would be to install um, either timers or sensors on your bathroom exhaust fans. Certainly when people uh, use the bathroom, for example, they might turn on that switch, but there isn't actually a lot of excess moisture in there, and we don't want to leave that on for a couple of hours or until the next time someone visits that space. So having timers on that, uh, you know, there's often ones that have a little 5, 10, or 15 minutes uh, timer. And also using a, um, a humidity sensor, sometimes called a, a humistat. Those can be found for very low cost. They can be installed often by an electrician, but potentially also uh, by yourself to control that bathroom exhaust fan, to turn it on when humidity is noticed to be really high in there. So that, that's a uh, sort of introductory level of, of automated control to that system. 
And I know some of our uh, provincial incentive programs right now allow for for bathroom fan sensors in particular to help automate that and make sure that they're both running efficiently, but providing the services to manage the moisture and, and air quality in our washrooms. That could be a big help. Uh, something else that you could look at is your windows, especially if you're noticing moisture around them or condensation on them. Um, at some point, windows are due for a refresher. They're due for uh, replacement. So that could be something that could be looked into. Uh, you could also look into installing uh, a heat recovery ventilator, HRV. Uh, these tend to be a little bit more pricey on the, in the retrofit scenario, but definitely uh, can be done, and you can speak to a contractor about that. You could also look at using a dehumidifier or uh, either an installed or a portable air conditioning unit if required. So that's an overview of the technical solutions for ventilation. But Darla, you actually design programs to work with homeowners and residents, so you probably have a better insight into the practical habits for residents. Let me ask you then, what can residents do directly to improve their ventilation or address their moisture issues? I think, you know, you've, you've kind of stated it before, and, and I would reiterate is, um, working with residents to understand the use of those intermittent fans, so the bathroom fan and the kitchen fan in particular, um, making sure, you know, if those aren't automated, that they know when to be using them and how long to be using them for. That's probably the number one thing you can do. And then the number two thing I would say is if they are having ventilation or moisture issues, to work with them to help out the airflow. It's a bit counterintuitive, but keep interior doors open so that the air can flow easily between rooms. This is really important if you have a wood-fired heating system as well because the, the heat will get trapped in that one central room and not get out to the other rooms. Along those lines, you can also help by installing vents in doors or transom windows over the doors, louvered closets so that you've got airflow in your closets as well. And anything you can do to improve the airflow in places that get musty is, is a really good idea. And then we talked a little bit about fresh air and recirculated air. So in winter, especially if you're finding that the, the heat is uneven in your home, there's some things that you can do to help rate the air in your space and just create a more even heat. So, you know, installing small fans to help move the, the air between rooms. There's even little doorway fans that you can install that help move the air in and out. And then in summer, when you're not worried about having to heat all that fresh air coming into your home, you can open the windows and look for cross ventilation opportunities. So opening two windows on opposite sides of your house to get the air flowing through or opening windows on the bottom floor and the top floor to help kind of that stacked air ventilation where hot air is going to rise and then flow out the top. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, a lot of this is really common sense, but um, sometimes thinking about it in the context of improving ventilation or addressing moisture issues helps. So along those same lines, keeping things clean and dry, especially in our wet rooms, so that's bathrooms and kitchens, but then also in our laundry room around the washing machine. So wiping up spills and leaks and then watching for and repairing or reporting any cracks and seals and drips and that sort of thing so that they can be dealt with quickly before the moisture builds up and it becomes more of a problem. Okay, so you're mentioning spills and leaks now, but what exactly does that have to do with moisture in the air? So anytime that there's moisture or liquids, they're going to evaporate into the air. So it's going to add that extra bit of moisture as they evaporate up. Or the other end of it is that you will have a persistent moisture issue, which can cause, again, those mold issues or invite pests into your home, which can then cause more structural damage or issues that, that again, cause bigger problems that you then have to address. Got it. That makes sense. So along with the kitchen and the bathroom, 
any kind of functional room like, like a wet room or maybe if there was a kind of a workshop or a sink in in some sort of a hallway that would would also uh, be something to focus on hey yeah you want to pay attention to any of those rooms where you're noticing some of that mustiness or that wetness in the air those are the rooms where you really want to make sure that you're drying things out and then even thinking about that don't add to the problem so if you're hang drying your clothes you don't want to hang dry them in your laundry room where there's a lot of moisture already or hang dry them in your bathroom where there's a lot of moisture already you want to kind of move them into a room where there's good airflow and they're not going to add to the moisture issue in the space Drying wood indoors is another one. So you might not think about it, but it's definitely adding a lot of moisture. And then, like you mentioned, if we're doing any kind of bulk canning of food or bulk processing of food, maybe we're processing salmon for the season, you've got those pots boiling for you know hours straight. That's when you really want to make sure you're opening up the windows and you're getting that moisture out. That might be the one uh, point in the year where I would encourage you to don't worry about the heating bills. Just make sure you're getting the moisture out of the space. Yeah, that seems like it would be worth it in a case like that. Okay, all that makes sense in terms of moisture management. Um, but what about kind of the, the thermal comfort uh, issue? Is, is there any of that that applies similarly to, to, to keeping us warm and comfortable? You know, this is one of those things, everything old is new again. So anytime you can put a little bit of insulation between yourself or the people in your space and the, and the cold outside, using seasonal rugs, for example, that can be put down in the winter and then taken up in the summer and cleaned properly and taken outside, that's a really good option. You know, hanging blinds, even hanging tapestries. If you've got a cold spot on your walls, hanging a tapestry can help to insulate that a little bit. I will put the caveat on that to watch for moisture behind the tapestry, especially if you're hanging heavy blinds over a window you can actually trap moisture behind the window and, and cause some of that mold and mildew problem so that's the one caveat I would add there and then in the summer kind of this similar idea making sure that you're using your blinds to keep the sun out and reduce that solar heat gain that you might be getting through the windows I see and what role can housing managers play in this is there a way that they can support residents directly in, in, in these habits and practices that you just described definitely and I think housing managers or asset managers, energy managers can have a really big role to play here in supporting residents to adopt some of these good habits. The one caveat I would put there is that if you're going to impact their comfort or convenience or cost, it's going to be an uphill challenge. So think about cost, both in terms of a financial cost, but also time or effort. The more that you can do to make it easy to practice some of these good habits. With that in mind, I would say there's a ton of really great resources out there and really quality information resources that you can access and then just circulate and modify. So if you're looking at, uh, say, moisture issues or mold issues, Health Canada has some great resources. Um, if you're looking at things that we can do around our homes in terms of keeping the heat in or keeping our, our energy bills down, BC Hydro has some great information about that. So I, I encourage you to go check out what's already out there and then bring it back and modify it for your own purposes and make sure you do the attribution on it. But, <laughs> you know, the information is already out there. Take advantage of it. And then I'm a really big fan of seasonal guides or reminders. There's a lot of this stuff that only happens once a year. And so just sending out a little prompt can sometimes be uh, really helpful. So weatherizing your home for winter and then weatherizing your home for summer as well. So the heating season and the cooling season, getting your home ready for both of those things. It sounds like the, the line could get a little blurry in terms of who is responsible for some of these items. 
Definitely. And I think that's one of the biggest things housing managers can do is have a really clear problem reporting process and just make it really clear with the residents what they're responsible for maintaining and then when to get in touch with the housing department or, you know, whomever it is to address larger issues where you would actually come in and fix the problem. So having a really clear um, problem reporting process, communicating with your residents about what they're responsible for. And then just in terms of that problem reporting process, just a couple of tips to make sure that you're keeping it in writing. So whatever complaints you receive, you're documenting them and kind of keeping track of that conversation. And then some of the stuff will not be in your purview. So it's really handy if you are prepared with some of those referral resources. So you can kind of put them on to the right person to answer their question if it isn't part of your responsibility. And then it's just kind of good practice to close the loop and follow up with them. So if if it is something that you are going out to address, just give them a call a little ways afterwards and make sure that the issue has been resolved to their satisfaction. That sounds like a good process. So thanks for putting me on the hot seat, Stefan. I'm going to turn it around back on you. (laughs) And uh, we're going to move on to air conditioning. We've been talking about ventilation from the perspective of heating, but air conditioning is essentially ventilation for cooling. And I know, well, probably not thinking about air conditioning in Fort St. John, it is a real issue in, say, the South Okanagan and some of the warmer parts of our province. And it's one that's anticipated to increase as you know, wildfire smoke and hotter, drier summers as a result of climate change become more of an issue in this province. What are some of the things that we should be thinking about? Well, like you said, the demand for it is certainly expected to increase in the coming years. There's climate change, there's changing environmental conditions, you mentioned wildfires, but there's also just a cultural shift. You know, not having a very hot home or a workplace uh, be acceptable anymore. So certainly I expect to see this type of units be more and more common in more and more types of buildings over the next few years. Certain building codes will recommend uh, 23 to 27 degrees as a maximum indoor air temperature. Above 30, 32, uh, this is when we, st- we start to see health issues uh, that can arise uh, from that. And so what do we need to know about air conditioning from an energy efficiency perspective. This is something we feel we need in our home or in our region. Well, the main thing you need to know is that this is an electrical machine and you're going to see that on your bills every month. I can definitely see that air conditioning is going to increase our electrical demand. But what about purchasing like energy star rated models or energy efficient models? Do they exist? They absolutely do. And I would recommend purchasing an Energy Star certified machine. These are going to run a little bit more efficiently. They often have uh, better controls to not operate when they don't need to be on. Uh, but the fundamentals uh, are still the same. It's an electrical device, and um, it is going to represent an increase in your electricity bill. So, like with many things, we need to find a balance of of using that. If we don't want to go the route of air conditioning, but we are concerned about too much heat in our homes, particularly in the summer, what are some of the other options that we can be thinking about? Well, one thing to know about the heat that comes into your home is that it's partially from the warm air outside that's that's coming in and, and, and heating up the home, but it's also very much from the sun's radiant energy. So anything that we can do to block that radiant energy when the heating is not desired in the home, that's going to really bring your temperatures down. And if you do have an AC unit, it's going to decrease the runtime of that AC unit. So things that we can look at for that are, for example, to 
install and use blinds, either your typical blinds that are inside the window or some shutter style blinds that are installed outside the window or awnings uh, that, that actually provide a degree of shade, especially ones over windows that's not allowing the sun's rays to come directly in through the windows. You could consider planting trees uh, that are out, outside of uh, your large windows, especially if you have south-facing windows, hopefully not in a fire interface zone. You could also look at uh, installing UV coatings on the windows. Some of those aftermarket UV coatings can actually void your window warranty. So while they could be helpful in reducing the amount of sunlight or UV energy coming through your windows, it's, it's really important to check with your manufacturer and make sure that you're not voiding your warranty if you do have narrow windows. Yeah, absolutely. It's not a totally uh, simple process and you do have to check that uh, the type of uh, coating or film that you're looking to apply is, is compatible with your existing windows. Another thing to consider is just uh, any other indoor sources of heat inside your building. Uh, computers perhaps left running overnight, perhaps they don't need to be. Those are always generating heat. Uh, incandescent or halogen light bulbs are always generating a noticeable amount of heat. So swapping those out could also uh, reduce the amount of overheating that you have. I know on our farm, we used to have an outdoor kitchen as well for summer so that we wouldn't heat up the house. You know, just basic kitchen outside and a little covered awning and that was enough. Or maybe we could just barbecue on our decks. So... Wrapping up here, Stefan, what are some of the big takeaways around ventilation and especially addressing those indoor air quality and mold issues that can be a really big problem for some communities? Well, I would say automate those exhaust fans, uh, making sure that the, the fans that you have in your home are being used and that you have good maintenance practices and that everybody in the home is following those practices, right? We don't wanna leave the fans on unnecessarily and we don't wanna leave them off when they should be either. If you're seeing moisture issues, uh, do a little investigation to find the, the source of the problem, and uh, there are some actions that you can take to address it. If you're unsure about whether um, carbon dioxide or humidity inside your home is an issue, uh, you know maybe consider investing in one of these sensors uh, that would help you put a sort of a number to things, and would help you understand if those are real issues, and also when they become issues. And lastly, um, if, if these things aren't working, you might want to look into a mechanical solution, whether that's uh, an air conditioning unit or a dehumidifying unit or even an HRV. You can imagine some of those sensors being useful tools for housing managers who are trying to address complaints and understand complaints without being in the space. So that's very helpful. Thanks so much, Stefan. I've, I've learned a lot today. It's been my pleasure, Darla. Thanks for having me. And thank you to our listeners for taking the time in your day to learn more about ventilation and air quality in your homes. We hope you found this helpful and perhaps have a few new ideas to bring into your work. For more information on the Home Energy Safe program or to download the next podcast in this series, please visit Fraser Basin Council's website and the First Nations Home Energy Safe webpage. You'll find there a companion resource for this podcast, along with links to incentive programs and resources available to Indigenous communities in British Columbia. You can also sign up for their newsletter to learn about new training opportunities and support programs. This podcast has been developed by SES Consulting as part of the Fraser Basin Council's First Nations Home Energy Safe program. The program is sponsored by the Province of British Columbia, BC Hydro, Fortis BC, and the Real Estate Foundation of British Columbia. 
Production by Aaron Trazo of Bird Media.